Any planners here? Couple. <laughs> it's just in your nature. You plan, you've got to plan everything out. A few, okay. I discovered that there are some aspects of my son's lives where they were planners. Um, the other, uh, a month or two ago, we were playing and they like to play with um, Nerf guns and lightsabers and, and battle dad, okay? So it's, it's sons against dad, not exactly fair, it's two against one. And um, they're getting bigger. That used to be okay. And they said, Dad, just I need you to stay out in the living room for a bit. Or a family room. Just just sit here. I'm like, okay. And I don't know what they're doing, but we'll play in a minute. Just sit here. And they're off doing stuff for a while. Who knows what. And then they come out and say, okay, we're ready. And they have their Nerf guns. And I go to my closet because I, I might have a couple Nerf guns too. <laughs> and... We pull out the Nerf guns, and we're running around shooting them, and I'm getting the upper hand, okay? This is awesome. And, and I have them on the run, and we're in the kitchen, and we have an island, we're running around the island, and then they're running down the hallway, and I've got them. I've got them cornered, because they go into my office, and there is nothing for them in my office. And they go jumping behind my desk, and I come around, and I'm going to shoot them, and up pops two boys with a variety of guns and lightsabers. They were prepared. And they knew... Oh, I missed. They knew where I would go, and they just pummeled me. Guns, and they they have this Nerf shotgun, and and Nerf guns I didn't know they had. And so, you know, we get through that, and I, I resurrect from the dead. And um, by the way, today is Star Wars Day, for those that um, like Star Wars. And I resurrect from the dead and go running into the bedroom, my bedroom, mind you. And again, they go behind my bed, and I have them, and they pull out three or four more weapons and pummel me. And somewhere along the way, they had decided it was good to be prepared for battle. And sure enough, that was the turning point in our war, and they defeated me that day. Never since. (laughs) I have learned my lesson. But when we think of battles, we think of preparation. You would not go into a battle unprepared, right? And, And when we think of preparation, what kinds of things would we think of? Well, getting your weapons ready, getting things together. And as we come to following the children of Israel, they have just crossed the Jordan by God's miraculous hand. And He has taken the waters back and they've crossed. And they're two miles outside of Jericho about to start the conquering of the land and take Jericho. And so this is the time that they should be preparing. And so I can just imagine in the camp, over here you have sword fighting 101. And and over here you have shield blocking, advanced shield blocking. And maybe over here formations for dummies or something like that. And, you know, all these classes and preparing... But it's interesting, as we come to the text today, that's not what God had them do. God had them prepare, but not in, in, in warfare and not in those kinds of things. He had them prepare in a completely different way, a way that we come to this text, and again, it might not make sense, but to God, it makes perfect sense. Because chapter 5 of Joshua reflects God's priorities. It reflects that He desired hearts that are tuned to Him and turned to Him. And He wants to prepare their hearts just as He wants to prepare our hearts. You know, at, at, at Village, I, I often hear talk of 
wow, look what God's doing in this ministry and this ministry and people that have accepted Christ and people that are being ministered to. And talk of, well, imagine what God might be doing this next year. And as we come to the business meeting in two weeks, we talk about that. We dream a little bit. What might God be wanting to do through Village this next year? And that's exciting because this is part of the work of God, the battle of God, because we know we're in spiritual warfare. But as we come to thinking of what God might be doing, I think Joshua 5 is so important to us to look at because as God prepared the children of Israel for warfare, we can learn some of the same lessons for how He wants to prepare us to do His work. And are we going to be a prepared people to do God's work at Village. Because if we're not prepared in the way God wants, then, then He won't use us. He may use others to accomplish His task, but He won't use us. And so preparation is vital. And as we look through Joshua 5, we're going to see that God is concerned about the heart, and specifically, He wants a heart that is cleansed. He wants a heart that then remembers who He is and celebrates who He is that is dependent on Him, and then He wants a heart that is submissive. And we're going to look, work through chapter 5 here, and it's, it's, it's um, written in three different stories, three different sections that represent those three different areas of preparation. So turn with me to Joshua 5. Turn with me to Joshua 5, and we'll see what kind of weapons cache God wants us to store up how He wants to prepare us for battle. Joshua chapter 5, verse 1. And verse 1 is sort of an introductory verse, a, a transitional verse, a transitioning from the crossing to the preparation, which will then transition to the conquering. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Where have we heard words like that before? Rahab. Rahab. Good. Whoever said that. Excellent. Rahab in chapter 2. As the spies spied out the land, Rahab said, this is what people are feeling. Well, now God has dried up the Jordan. They've crossed. They are shaking in their boots. They are trembling. Just a little bit of a, a, a geography lesson. We have here mentioned the Amorites and the Canaanites. And if you remember, the children of Israel were here and they cross over the Jordan here. And now they're about two miles outside of Jericho here. And the lay of the land, which you can't really see here, is all of this is the coastal region, the coastal land. And that's where the Canaanites were. Um, very um, lush land, beautiful land. Then this middle area down Israel is the Shephelah, which are like low rolling hills. And it also was very fertile. And then when we come up here to Jerusalem, down in, down in here, in this area, that's the mountainous area of, of Israel. Don't think mountains like Mount Baldy. Think a little lower. But it's an area that is a little bit more rugged. And then here you have the Rift Valley, which is the lowest points on earth. So it goes from mountains that just drops off. And so this verse is talking about the Canaanites here and the Amorites that are mentioned are up in the hill country. That's where they have their fortresses and, and their strongholds. And so really he's talking about all the people of the land. So just sort of a, a fun, anytime we get to use maps, that's a good thing. But think about this and, and let's put ourselves in our shoes, in their shoes. Remember as we interpret scripture, we want to look at context. 
And context is really important to understand how vital and how odd to us chapter 5 is. They've crossed the Jordan. And what does it say about the kings of the land? They're trembling. They're afraid. They don't even want to come out and fight them. So if you're a military commander, what, what is this an opportunity for? Conquest, right? This is the time to go in. Don't let them regroup. Don't let them get their defenses together. This is the time to go in and destroy Jericho. And that sets up chapter 5 because that's not what God has them do. We find out that our timing is often not God's timing. That God, and isn't that true of life? Our timing and our plans are often not God's plans because God is trying to accomplish something altogether different from, quite frankly, our puny little plans compared to His greatness and who He is. And so we find out that God isn't in a hurry. He doesn't have to have them strike the next day to strike Jericho the next day, otherwise they'll lose the city. He's not in a hurry. He has more important priorities. Priorities of the heart. So when we look at these three preparations, we go on through the the text, and verses 2-9 through are the next story in the text. And the first essential preparation for battle that God has them do is cleansing. Cleansing. God cares more about the state of our hearts than the effectiveness of our plans. That's hard to say. Because we have really good plans. But God cares more about the state of our hearts than the effectiveness of our plans. We must have right hearts with God to effectively do His work. And so He's looking for a forgiven, a cleansed, and a dedicated heart. So let's work two through, through the verses 2-9 through nine here and see what God is instructing them to do. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, so they've crossed over, it's time to take Jericho. The Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. And at that point, if you're looking at this, you would be like, what? This is not the time for that. Right? Not only are we now two miles away from Jericho, which has a standing army, but now, God, you're asking me to incapacitate my entire army. Because this is something they would have had to heal from from several days. We know that. Remember Genesis 34? Remember when, when Simon and Levi... They're going into Shechem to avenge the rape of their sister. And, and in, a, in a really interesting story, especially if you're listening through the Bible with your kids, um, in an interesting story, they come in and say, hey, do you want to be part of us? And they're like, yeah, we want peace and we want to marry your, your sister, this, this one person. And they, okay, then you all need to be circumcised. Remember the story? They were all circumcised, and three days later, the, the um, Simon and Levi and their brothers came in and wiped them out because they couldn't fight. They were incapacitated. And so God says to Joshua, I'd like you to take out flint knives, or obsidian knives. Obsidian probably was in that area. And I'd like you to circumcise your entire army, all of the men. And to us, this isn't right timing. To us, this is foolish. To God, it's about their hearts. It's about hearts of obedience. It's about hearts of trust. And this became a defining moment, yet another defining moment, and a long line of defining moments of Joshua's leadership. Will he obey or will he not? It's a test of faith and trust. 
Because if I incapacitate my whole army, who do I have to trust that they'll be safe? In God Almighty. Because my strength is gone. My army is gone. And it's important to see this, the timing of this, in the sequence of Joshua. This is where context helps us see how incredible this command was. Because this was foolishness to to people. But this was a priority to God. Verse 3 is really interesting. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. There's no but God. There's no I don't know. How about if we only do this to half of our army, let them heal, and then do this to the other half? What does Joshua do? He obeys. And if you remember, one of the themes that we talked about of looking throughout Joshua is obedience. What made Joshua a great man and by the end called a servant of God? It was simple steps of obedience. God says to circumcise Let's get out the knives. We're going to obey. Wow. I so appreciate his faith and his trust in God that would lead him to obey in a situation that to us wouldn't make sense. So we go on. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. So here the author is explaining a little bit, and Joshua is explaining a little bit, okay, this is why we did it. All of the the ones that came out of Egypt, they died in the wilderness. Verse 5, Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. And so what you have is before the Passover, the first Passover in Egypt, before the Exodus, all of the males were were circumcised. They came out throughout the 40 years that they've been wandering the wilderness, none of their kids, none of the little boys were circumcised, even though that was a command from God. Now, we we, we talk about the Israelites and we we think, oh, wow, they, they didn't even go into the land when God said, and that's true, but that was in a long line of compromise. They were already disobeying God on the area of circumcision. They had already built idols at Mount Sinai. This was a people who was struggling to get Egypt out of their system. Who was struggling to to, to obey God and to submit to God. And this is just further testimony of that. Further testimony of their indifference toward God and His commands. I want to just pause for a moment. Why circumcision? It's something that so, oh great, we get to go to church today and talk about circumcision for 40 minutes. Circumcision was an important sign to the children of Israel of a much deeper covenant, of a much more important covenant. Turn with me to Genesis 17. And let's go back to the Abrahamic covenant, to God's conversations with him. Genesis 17, verse 10. We'll just pick a couple verses out. There's a lot more to study there. And what we're going to see is that this is part of the covenant God is making with Abraham and his descendants, with the people, an everlasting covenant. Yes, other um, nations also circumcise, and other nations practice some of these things, but this was a specific sign that God was giving. 
In Genesis 17, verse 10, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. So this is a covenant where God has promised them land. He's promised to multiply them. He's promised to be their God and they would be His people. Every male among you shall be circumcised. It's a pretty straightforward command. Didn't leave room for what happened in the wilderness. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant. And it's important, like we talked about last week with spiritual memorials, the idea of sign is something physical and tangible that represents a deeper truth or represents something else. Just like the rocks were a sign, circumcision was a sign. The act of circumcision didn't somehow magically make them in relationship with God. It was an act of obedience that was a sign of a deeper covenant, of a deeper relationship. Down in verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. He has broken my covenant. When we think of a covenant, we think of responsibilities and obligations on both sides. This was one of the responsibilities, one of the commands that God had asked them to follow. And it marked a covenant loving, Hasid relationship with God. But part of that was to follow God's instructions. Not as a chore, but because that's how God said life works best. That's how He would be in relationship with them. So it was an outward physical sign of an inward relationship with Yahweh. And so God had given these commands as a sign of His covenant he is now, as they're entering the land, about to fulfill part of the covenant, right? We've, we've talked a lot about the importance of the land to them, and this was a promise, and they've been looking forward to this. But the nation of Israel was not circumcised. They had not done what God had asked them to do. And so God gives them this test. As we've seen throughout many of the chapters, we see parallels with Joshua and Moses. And this is another case where there were parallels. Moses also had a test of circumcision. He's on his way to, to confront Pharaoh and, and to confront Pharaoh to, to release his people. And in Exodus 4.24, we see that, that they stopped for the night, he and his wife and his son, and Moses had not circumcised his son. And this is after the commands of Genesis 17. And so in Exodus 4.24, we read, At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. This was a life and death issue for Moses. And God came and says, You didn't obey me. I'm going to kill you. Then Zipporah, who was his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he being God, let him being Moses alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of, bridegroom of blood because of circumcision. So Moses had a moment that he didn't obey right away. And his wife stepped in and saved his life. Joshua was faced with a moment of much greater consequence, a nation that could die because of this, that, that could be incapacitated and defeated and killed in battle. And Joshua steps up to the plate. And Joshua says, okay, God. I will obey you. We're reminded that a heart of obedience is the glory of God. It's His desire. We need to be a people with hearts of obedience. 
The story goes on. We read verse 6, For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that He would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us. A land flowing with milk and honey. And that's a, that's a real interesting verse because you have twice, you have two mentions of God swearing something. And God swore that He would not give the disobedient generation entrance into the land. But he had, it says, but it's the land that God swore to us as a nation. And what you see there is a reflection of God's faithfulness. That even though the generation before, because of their sin, would not participate in the work of God, would not participate in the, the blessings of God, God would still keep His promises. The unfaithfulness of one generation won't negate God's work and won't negate God's plan and His promises. And so we see God's justice and God's mercy as He keeps His promises. So it was their children whom he, raised, whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. Verse 7. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Gilgal being a play on a Hebrew word meaning to roll away, the verb to, to roll away. Fascinating way to prepare an army for battle. Let's incapacitate them. But this was an issue of the heart. And this was an issue of cleansing of the heart, of confession uh, of the sins of their, their, the generation before, of cleansing the reproach and the evidence of sin. And, and just some thoughts, four thoughts as we look at this section Circumcision was always about the heart, and it still is for us. Circumcision was always about the heart, and it still is for us. It is easy to think of circumcision as just an Old Testament physical thing. And hey, we don't even have to really talk about it. I don't know why we're spending time on it this morning. But it was always about the heart. And so for us, the application comes to the heart issues. Not the physical sign, that was for the nation of Israel, but what is the heart issue that it represents? But it was always about the heart. God could have defeated Jericho at any time. And so, so He stops them and deals with their heart. We see this in the prior generation. They were all circumcised. They had the external sign of being in covenant relationship with God. Were they? No. How does it describe them? Disobedient. In other verses, rebellious. And so the external sign did not affect their relationship with God. And I'm challenged with that because we can do the same thing. Coming to church doesn't make us godly people. doesn't make us godly men and women. Knowing Christianese and how to pray and how to talk and how to look like a Christian doesn't make us Christian. In fact, it's easy to fool each other. Especially if you've been raised in the church. You know what to do, what not to do, what to wear, where to sit, where to st when to stand. We just know all these things and we can look like such God-fearing men and women. But the external is simply that. The external. And God is looking at the heart. The prior generation had the external, but they didn't have the heart. This next generation 
had the heart, but they hadn't obeyed the external yet. And that's what this story was fixing. They were willing to obey God. They were willing to enter the land. They were willing to be circumcised. And so God is purging the sin out of their lives and asking for their obedience. A couple of verses. It's interesting, even in the Old Testament, when we think of circumcision, the verses in the Old Testament say it was about the heart. Flip over a couple. I'll have you look at a couple of them. Some you can look up on your own. Deuteronomy 10. Just back one, one book. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 16 and 17. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great and mighty and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. And so here he's saying, circumcise your heart. Cut away stubbornness. This idea of not following God Almighty, of wanting our own way, of thinking we know best, needs to be cut out of your heart. And so he's comparing circumcision physically with circumcising the heart. Flip over to chapter 30 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And we see a picture there of God coming into our hearts and performing surgery and, and, and cutting away anything that stands in the way of loving God wholly. Loving God with all our heart and with our, all our soul. So this idea of circumcision was always about the heart. The external was a sign of what God desired for the internal. Jeremiah 4, 3 and 4 says the same thing. It's a little bit later and, and He's calling Israel to repentance. God is calling them to repentance. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground and sow not among thorns. Start to listen. Start to be receptive. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Those things that stand in the way of listening to God. He goes on to say, cut out your evil deeds. Paul picks this up in Romans. So it's in the New Testament, it's also about circumcision of the heart. Because it's the heart that matters. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So circumcision was always about the heart. Be there when under this um, cleansing. There was an acknowledgement of sin. There was an acknowledgement of sin, confession in this passage. In verses 5 through 7, you see an acknowledgement of the sins of the generation before. This by the leaders, but part of this was the people taking away the reproach of what had happened before. The generation before was disobedience. Was disobedient. The answer was confession and cleansing. Admitting God is right and we are wrong and cleansing, cutting away sin and anything that defiles us. This story should, should help us understand just how serious sin is. That God was willing to stop the, the, the incursion, to stop the conquest, to deal with this. We need to take sin seriously. So seriously. I think of teaching my kids about crossing a street. And little kids, 
They don't see the, the danger of it, right? They just go, hey, I want to get to the other side. Do, 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 do. And, and you know, we as parents pray that no car happens to be coming right then. They don't understand the seriousness of it. And in a, in a much greater way, we don't understand the seriousness of sin. And we play with it. And we casually sin because, well, I can confess and it's okay. Sin is something that is to be cut out of our lives. Radical surgery. And that's reflected in our confession. When we confess sin to God, when we've been convicted of something, is it just, oh God, I'm sorry. Didn't mean to do that. And moving on, which is a really light view of sin. Or is it just, as they did in the Old Testament, sackcloth and ashes, where I'm so broken because of what I have done in rebellion against God Almighty that I have to come to him and confess. There was an acknowledgement of the sin, confession. See, the solution was cleansing with intentional and costly surgery of sin. The solution was cleansing with intentional and costly surgery of sin. And we can joke about it and say, yeah, that was costly, that was painful, and I can't believe they had to go through it. But if circumcision is really about the heart and we've seen from Scripture that that's exactly where God goes with it, then what needs to be cut out of our hearts and what measures are we willing to take to get rid of it? It's one thing to confess sin. It's another thing entirely to make sure we never sin again in that way. To remove anything that tempts us. You know, it's someone that comes and confesses, I'm sorry that I've been looking at porn, God. Please help me stop. But they never do anything to get rid of the computer or the tablet or whatever they're looking at porn on. They may have confessed, and I would argue that that's not even a, a genuine confession, but have they been cleansed and have they taken steps to perform surgery in their lives to get rid of that sin? God asked the people to perform surgery in a physical sense, but also for the, the, their, their um, hearts. And it talks about the sin, and then in verse 7, so it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they had not, for they were not circumcised, or for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And jumping down to verse 9, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. There's all kinds of discussion of what is the reproach of Egypt. Some say it was, that, that they were in slavery at one time, so that's embarrassing. Some have said, oh, Egypt made fun of them because God didn't take them right into the promised land. I, I just don't see that in this context. I think the third option is the best here, that the reproach of Egypt was the sin of Egypt, the rebellion that they just couldn't get out of their systems, that the people that were in Egypt always wanted to go back and craved some of those things that were sinful. So I think it represents the reproach of sin of that generation. But what reproach of sin does God want to roll away from our lives? There's a couple of aspects of this. One is that our God is a cleansing God. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And He can wipe us clean and He can make us pure and white as snow as we sang this morning. But then he wants us to not return to that. To cut out everything in life 
that makes life unholy and to live holy lives. In Colossians 2, verse 11, Paul again is talking to the church at Colossians. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And he says, really what I want for the church, and Paul is talking to the church, is it's not a circumcision with hands, it's not a physical surgery, but a spiritual surgery where we put off the body of flesh, where the the body of sin in this world is no longer part of our lives. People should be able to look at us and not see the world. But to see a separated people, a holy people, a people that love God with all their heart, soul, and strength. Paul goes on in that letter to the church, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And he brings in a symbol for the church, an ordinance to the church of baptism, that he said, this is now what represents your relationship with God. That you have been cleansed by God. That you are now His children. The solution for the people was intentional and costly surgery of sin. But through that, God rolled away the reproach. And they were clean before God. There is nothing anyone has done in this room that God can't roll away. And that God can't clean. None of us are out of the reach of God's hand. It's amazing and should draw us to a loving, saving, cleansing Savior. Last observation about this this section. These actions were corporate. They were dealt with as a nation. They were dealt with as a whole corporately. We think personally, and, and rightfully so, we should be clean before God and we should confess before God. But there was this aspect of together they were acknowledging the sins of their ancestors and together they were taking care of it. We're left with some difficult questions as we reflect on this. What needs to be cleansed out of my life? Do I have any sins that I haven't dealt with before God, that I haven't confessed, that I haven't put on the altar? Is there anything that's borderline, that's almost sin, that, that's, that's really representing a, the reproach of sin, but keeping me from a deeper relationship with God? What needs to be surgically cut out of my life so that I can be prepared to do God's work? The passage goes on in verse 10. The bulk of the time is on the, that first preparation, but two other stories that we want to hit. Verses 10 through 12, the second essential preparation is remembering. We talked about that a lot last week. Honor God by remembering and celebrating what He has done and what He is doing. Honor God by remembering and celebrating what He has done and is doing. And we come to a time of feasting. It's Passover now. And in verse 10, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, which would have, would have started a seven-day feast of unleavened bread, the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. That's huge. What have they been eating for 40 years? Manna. 
And this is a significant change that now the, the Passover is looking at what God has done, but then what God is doing is, is fulfilling His promises. And for the first time, they eat of the produce of the land, the promise, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel. Not because God wasn't providing, but because He was providing in a different way. But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And the Passover was a time of remembering. It was a time of remembering the Passover lamb and, and when, they, when God brought them out of Egypt and the, the plague, the tenth plague of the death of the firstborn, but if they had the blood on the doorposts, then they were passed over. And we know for us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And so we, as we celebrate communion, we are remembering again God releasing us from the bondage of sin. through His death, through His resurrection, through the power of His blood. But that remembering, like we talked about, it's a thanksgiving, God-directed focus. It's a dependence on Him. And so God says, the second part of your preparation is remembering Me, focusing on Me, honoring Me, because this isn't about you. We know that even to participate in the Passover, the men had to be circumcised. So the two stories go together. The first nine verses are about even being able to celebrate Passover together. Because of that, Passover was not something that the, the Israelites had practiced other than two other times. This was the third time since it was instituted that it was practiced. The first was on the night of the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 12, the second was at Mount Sinai after the Ten Commandments had come. Before they broke camp, they celebrated Passover again. And now, 40 years later, they're finally getting back to something God had commanded. It's a further step of obedience, but it's a remembering what God has done. It's a celebrating what God has done. You know, last week, when we talked about remembering, we took time in the service and I asked, What's God, what has God done? A little awkward, right? Because we're not really prepared to answer that. In our community group, we asked the same question and it was an incredible blessing to hear stories but again, we're not always real comfortable answering that question. I asked it on Facebook. Just everywhere this last week, I wanted us to be thinking about what has God done and how are we going to remember it. This is what God was doing as part of the preparation of the Israelites for battle. Celebrate God. Remember what He's done. Again, they did this corporately. They did this together. As a nation, they did this. Finally, we get to the last Two, three verses. And the third essential preparation is to strip away our illusion of control and actually see ourselves as servants. God wants a submitted heart. Submitting. Strip away our illusion of control and actually see ourselves as servants. And it's a fascinating passage starting at verse 13 when Joshua is by Jericho and so all of this has happened. Now Joshua is off by himself near the city of Jericho, possibly checking it out, figuring out how they were going to take the city. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with drawn sword in his hand. And, and the wording there is like, oh, he looked around, all of a sudden, like, boom, there he was! And this man with a drawn sword. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? 
And the key to this section is, is in the answer. And he said, no. Are you for us or against us? No. Doesn't answer my question. Joshua doesn't know who this is yet. The man goes on to explain what he means by no. Because he's not working for Joshua. He's not working for the enemy. No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Now you're prepared. Now you're ready. Now I have come. And it's a statement that says, no, I'm not in your army. I'm not in their army. I am the commander of the army. I'm not under you. You're my second in command. And so it's a very fitting answer. The first time you read it, like he didn't answer it. That, that's sort of silly. No, he, he's stressing his leadership here, his authority here, that it is his battle, his army, his fight, and not Joshua's. And we see at the end of 14, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does the Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. I'd love to get into a long discussion of who this person was, who this commander of the Lord's army was. There's a couple options. It could be just an angelic being as a messenger, but most likely this was something we would call a theophany, a visible appearing of God in human form or in visible form because of Joshua's response. You didn't just respond this way to a man. This was worship. And we know from the the Ten Commandments, you're not allowed to worship any other god. We see in in the next chapter in verse 2, this person responds as Yahweh, as God. It's also a comparison to the burning bush where Yahweh was speaking to Moses. So this was God meeting Joshua. And Joshua's response was one of worship, was one of submission, and acknowledging his authority. But God here is saying, this is my battle. Will you worship me? Will you follow me? Will you serve me? And Joshua says, what do you want me to do, Lord? I am your servant. When we come to the work of the Lord, we need to strip away our illusions of control, strip away this idea that we are in charge and it's going to go as we plan. And stop writing our plans in pen and write them in pencil and give God the eraser. And say, whatever you want to do, God, whatever your timing is, is sovereign. Whatever your way is, is perfect. I will follow you. And we fight that. Our independent, rebellious spirits fights it. Because we want our way. We want our opinion to be heard. We want to somehow inform God. And we do that when we get frustrated when God changes our plans. And it is frustrating. I've been frustrated when God has changed my plans. But a servant says, okay, God, whatever you want. You're in charge. And so God responds to the preparation of hearts with the confession and cleansing, with with the people coming and remembering God. He responds by showing up. Assuring Joshua of his presence. Dear Lord God, we worship you by saying thank you. We acknowledge that we are remembering you, 
that we are dependent on you, that it is entirely your work that we can even be sitting here today. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your salvation. May we prepare our hearts to do your work even before we make any plans. May we be a people of God that are submitted to you. In Jesus' name.